0: i'm brian sullivan and tonight a fresh warning that wall street may be souring on america's downtowns can cities still be revived we're gonna hear from miami mayor and presidential hopeful Francis suarez a brutal heat wave gripping the southeast or southwest as hurricane season roars to life is the nation's energy infrastructure ready for wild summer weather so much for those easing u.s china tensions beijing reportedly planning a new military training facility in cuba plus President Biden sitting down with top AI experts. Can the White House contain AI's risks without doing more harm than good? And the race to find a missing Titanic submarine raises new questions about the booming, extreme tourism industry, all that and much more. So belly up or buckle up? because last call is up right now. All right, well, as always, good evening here and good afternoon out west. Much more ahead over the hour, but first up on Last Call, a major meeting wrapping up in midtown Manhattan. That is where Elon Musk spoke with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This video shows the Tesla CEO leaving the Palace Hotel in midtime just a short time ago. He and Modi reportedly discussed Tesla's future plans, if any, in India. For more on the meeting, what we know, what we don't, let's bring in CNBC's Seema Modi. Seema, what do we know?
1: Well, Brian, I'm told both Elon Musk and Prime Minister Modi used this meeting to discuss Tesla's broader ambitions in India and Musk's interest in possibly setting up a manufacturing site in the country, lowering import taxes on key goods. And it does come as India has been trying to ramp up production of electric vehicles across the country, although it's had some missteps along the way with reports of explosions of some cars and e-scooters made by domestic players. So Tesla's expertise on the ground would certainly be welcomed by the Indians. But as long as Musk is building the cars it wants to sell in India. Similar to Apple, Brian, that's what Modi wants to see. Remember, Apple took years to set up an iPhone production factory in India to then finally open two retail stores earlier this year in the country.
0: Yeah, what are some of the next steps, Seema? This has been kind of a partnership dance, whatever, talk on and off for a while. Do we know of any concrete next steps?
1: Well, if uh, an Indian official was recently quoted saying that if Tesla wants to bring their products to India, uh, again, they need to be able to show that they'll be able to make the production, they'll be able to make those cars on site in the country. So I know the next question will be on lowering import taxes. Tesla has been quoted in the past saying that. Ta- import taxes in India are very high. So what type of incentives are the Indians willing to give Tesla if in fact they want to welcome the electric vehicle maker in the country?
0: So so basically to sell the car in India, at least as far as Tesla goes, you have to make the car in India.
1: Yeah, that's part of the Make in India campaign that Prime Minister Modi really launched uh, back in 2014. And it's a challenge for a lot of these U.S. companies because As much as they want to sell to 1.3 billion people and this growing market, which is India, it's also a tough country to produce in and to expand in. And that is expected to be one of the topics addressed by not only Elon Musk, but also Sundar Pichai of Google, Satya Nadella of Microsoft, among other tech CEOs that are set to meet with Modi on Thursday when he uh, gets to Washington, D.C. for the state visit, Brian.
0: Seema Modi, thank you very much, Seema. Appreciate it. All right. In the meantime, another major move in the electric car wars, Rivian becoming the latest company to switch sides, so to speak, saying we'll also move to the Tesla charging standard beginning next year. Now, at first, you're going to need to use an adapter. But the bigger news is that as of 2025, the Rivian truck and Rivian SUV will be built with the Tesla standard built in. Rivian says this makes EV ownership simpler and it follows huge moves doing the same by Ford and GM. Though one does wonder how Tesla owners may feel about this, given that it may start to jam up their supercharging stations. And also, if there could be any growing government concern over Tesla maybe becoming too powerful in the EV market. Time will tell on both, but right now investors like it. Shares of Rivian and Tesla both rose today about 5%. Now, no shocker for Tesla. That stock's up more than 40% since late May, when the EV car maker announced its first deal with Ford. Now, in the meantime, and on the flip side, shares of the third-party EV charging companies are continuing to get crushed. ChargePoint dropping more than 7% today. EVGo, Blink, also closed in the red. Now, those three stocks all down more than 20% since April 1st and have lost more than 40% of investor money in the past year. Not exactly a confidence booster for an industry that is getting billions in taxpayer credits under the big climate spending plan. For more on this and more, let's bring in the former president and CEO of Ford and CBC contributor Mark Fields and AutoTrader.com executive editor Brian Moody. Brian and Mark, good to good to have you on Last Call. Uh Thanks. Is this Mark? I mean, get, we we talked about it with Ford and GM, but now with Rivian, probably more to come. Is a game set match for Tesla winning the the plug standard wars.
2: Well, I don't think it's game, set, match. I think, you know, if you think about it right now, Brian, there's about a million vehicles on the road now that have the CCS uh, type of charger. And the bottom line is, as you see the new products coming out from the manufacturers, there's still going to be a mix uh, of both. But it's clear that with the agreements that Tesla has with Ford and GM and now Rivian, I mean, that's about 80% of the market right now. And I I think you're going to see the other automakers kind of get on this because it's all about providing charging uh, options and availability for uh, for their customers. And it's also about dependability and reliability. these These, these charge point operators, their their dependability of uh, their charges has been a bit spotty. and you know the new the, the new cars coming out from the automakers, they want to make sure those customers have a really good experience in charging their vehicles or they're not going to come back for their next EV.
0: Yeah, I would imagine, listen, being able, 90% of whatever charging is done at home, I get it, Brian, but if you're going to be in a road trip, you need to know you can get charging. I've been driving around in EVs. It's spotty to Mark's comment to say that that's probably a compliment, by the way. How critical of an issue do you think this is to EV adoption ultimately? It's critical, um, I think, but uh,
3: if you look at what's happening here, And what we just talked about with Musk talking to the leader of India, he's probably going to suggest to them that he can provide their infrastructure. And it looks like he's on the way toward providing significant infrastructure upgrades for our country. This is from a a company that didn't really exist in any meaningful way 25 years ago. And they're already to the point where they're leading. And these longtime other automakers are following. That's amazing to me. No matter what you think about Elon Musk, he gets lots of credit for creating a ground-up American automotive company that is now leading the way in a future technology. That's astounding.
0: Yeah, but Mark, you know, I will say this, we're we're building out thousands of these non-Tesla charging stations around the country. A lot of that is done under the Inflation Reduction Act and climate spending and whatever it may be. You noted the million vehicle figure, that's a lot. Are there enough non-Tesla charging cars out there to keep those charging companies alive I, you just wonder is there going to be a period where there's going to be just littered with these sort of abandoned charging stations
2: Well the simple answer is if some of the other automakers you know switch to the NACS the North American charging standard uh, the simple answer is no but you've noticed in the last week or two uh, most of the charge uh, point operators, have announced that they're going to also accept and put adapters and on their existing chargers to uh, allow for the NACS type of charging. Um, I think the, the the reason you mentioned earlier, their stocks have been you know pretty crushed the last couple of weeks. You know, if you look at the charge point operators right now, I don't see anyone that has a, a really credible plan to get to sustainable profitability and the cost that they now have to add to adopt the NACS adapter or charger to their existing chargers. It's only an additional cost. So, you know, I I do think it's a bit of a challenge for them. Uh, But the good news is the backdrop of the EV market that's going to continue to grow. So, you know, the, the need for chargers across America is absolutely crucial. So that tailwind will actually be positive for them.
0: Brian, can I switch gears just for a second? I want to I talk about something else that I've been thinking about lately. And, and, you know, our audience, they read me on Twitter or LinkedIn, know that I've been trying to be pragmatic. They'll call me critical. I've been trying to be pragmatic about this new world that we are finding ourselves in, having driven a number of EVs over a number of distances. And I spoke with a national auto dealer last week on the phone, kind of an off-the-record conversation. And we talked about a lot of things. But one of the things he brought up to me is something I had not thought of before, which is late-stage EV resale value. So I went to autotrader.com. You might have heard about it. And I looked up high-mileage 2015-2016 Tesla Model Ss, $110,000 cars that are now being offered mm-hmm. on your site for 21 dollars to $22,000, $25,000. And, and this dealer had expressed to me. He said, I don't, I don't want to buy old EVs, even get trades in, because I'm worried about the battery life. Is that a fair concern when you have one of these cars, what's it going to be worth after eight years? Because we know they're cheaper to maintain over the cost of ownership. But does right. that get negated right. when you go to resell it or trade it back in? I don't know. It's a fair
3: thing to be concerned about. What most people don't realize is that many new electric cars have a warranty that lasts, as I said, about eight years or 100,000 miles. After that, if it were me personally, I don't know that I would take the risk on buying an electric car that was outside of a warranty of some kind. Maybe that's an aftermarket. Maybe that's a certified pre-owned. But it is a concern. And one of the things that we're learning is that we don't always know how charging was done to the car that's used and sold in the open marketplace. It's not like gasoline-powered cars where you can look at the oil change records and see that the person took care of it. How they charge the car is going to determine – the life of that car as a used car going forward. And that's something that right now you might not know.
0: Yeah, is that a fair point, Mark? Because I understand it, battery pack replacement can be 15 to 20, over $20,000. So if I buy a seven-year-old car, I get a year and a half out of it, I get bad battery degradation, I'm basically looking at a paperweight unless I spend $20,000 out of warranty to get the car moving again. Or is that, is that sort of just a side concern that I don't want to overdo it? No, it's
2: a real it's a real concern given the cost and given the fact that you know the batteries have a certain shelf life and as Brian just said you know it depends on how many times it's been charged and discharged and all that kind of stuff. But I also think there's another fast charge. Uh, I, I think there's a, a, another issue which is you know when you look at the innovation that's going on on EVs and the cost downs that are going on right now, it's really tough. For example, you know Tesla's you know the Model Y is down. You know the cost of it or price of it is down 20% since the beginning of the year. so when you have a lot of these prices going down and a lot of innovation going in in terms of extending battery life and things of that nature that also impacts residual values of older vehicles it's kind of like you know phones you don't want a, you don't want an iPhone 7 you're not going to pay a lot of money for that because even though it's less mm. expensive it, it doesn't have the technology or the features that you really want so I think that's another big factor here, a lot of innovation going
0: on. Especially given that an automobile can often be the largest single purchase outside of a home or at all that a lot of people do make. Just kind of another issue, I think, has to be in people's minds as well as as we undergo the biggest change in the auto industry, maybe ever, or at least since the creation of the auto industry. Mark Fields, Brian Moody, real good stuff. Thank you very much. All right, in the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. And there was, I'm sorry to say, a lot of red on the screen. The Dow, S P, and NASDAQ all fell to begin their trading week. The Dow, the biggest loser of the three, about three quarters of 1% on the downside. Going inside the market, the biggest winner of the day, Generac, up nearly 8%. The biggest decliner, Edge, down about the same, kind of quite the juxtaposition. A backup power company, the best performer, a solar company, the worst. All right, straight ahead here on Last Call. Brutal heat, deadly storms, a summer of scary weather arrives already. Can our critical energy infrastructure withstand some of that pressure? Plus, a fresh warning sign for America's struggling downtown's Miami mayor and Republican presidential candidate Francis Suarez here with what he says could be a lifeline to many struggling American cities. Stick around. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you might be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, some tough earnings, or at least predictions, from FedEx. The shipping giant posting its third quarterly decline in a row. FedEx blaming lower demand and weak shipping volumes and says it plans to cutting back on some flight schedules and, that's a lot of hands, raise shipping prices. Shares of FedEx slumping after hours, by the way, following the news and the guidance. FedEx also will cut spending by $4 billion over the next two years. Finally, a large portion of the state of Texas under excessive heat advisories. 32 million people are under the warnings. Temperatures across the state are climbing over 100 degrees, but with the humidity, it could feel closer to even 120 degrees. Dangerous. Scorching heat, fueling concerns about strains on the state's power grid. Power prices have reportedly skyrocketed about 80 percent in just a matter of hours. And the grid operator, you know them as ERCOT, says is expecting record demand right now. So let's talk about this and some other big weather-related events that are happening now. Joining us is AccuWeather senior meteorologist Adam Del Rosso. Adam, thanks for joining us. Any sign of relief for Texas, which (laughs) is cooking?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, the answer is no. This is going to stick with us for the next several days, even into early next week in some cases. And we're already tired tired of it because we've been dealing with it since the end of last week. Dallas, Houston, El Paso today, all near 100. Lubbock 106, 114 in San Angelo. Some of that even spilling into the Dakotas. Grand Forks even getting to 100 this afternoon. But the core of the dangerous heat and humidity across Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, where we have the excessive heat warnings and heat advisories in place for the next several days. Reason being, we've got this big northward bump in the jet stream, that ridge allowing for sinking air, and sinking air warms. Notice by the time we get toward the end of the week, that ridge shifts a little farther off to the south. So you might get some relief into the central and northern plains. But Texas, no, we're still going to be baking here for the next Several days 96 for our Wednesday in Dallas, 99 in Houston could have an isolated storm, which will temporarily cool us down, but it's just going to add more humidity to the mix. Del Rio, we're forecasting a high of 110 for our Wednesday, which would be a new record high temperature. Laredo, McAllen, San Angelo, all in record territory tomorrow as well. Austin, we're going to be close, forecasting a high of 103. Record is 106. Once you factor in the humidity, this is what it's actually going to feel like outside tomorrow afternoon. And that darkest shade of red from Midland in Odessa to San Antonio, Austin, Houston, could feel as hot as 115. So we need to take all those precautions to keep cool. As I mentioned, through the weekend and into next week, Houston, we're going to keep it near the triple digits, Brian. So we're going to be sweating a lot.
0: Yeah, natural gas and coal doing about 74% of the load right now. Let's hope they can keep that up. Outside of that, Tropical storm Brett, which is in the Atlantic Ocean, could pose a risk for the Caribbean. The storm could arrive in the region by Friday and possibly could strengthen to a hurricane level by that time. This is coming as it's already been a busier and earlier season, which scientists say is because of abnormally high ocean temperatures in the Atlantic. The Atlantic Ocean right now is just kind of cooking. Adam, how intense might not only this storm But maybe this hurricane season B, given that last year in the Gulf of Mexico was one of actually the mildest we had seen in decades.
4: Right, so there are multiple factors that come into a forecast when it comes to hurricanes and tropical storms. We'll we'll use Brett for example here. Not only do we have the really warm water, that's going to allow this storm to strengthen a little bit more. There's also some wind shear at play, which are some of the faster winds higher up in the atmosphere, which are actually going to try and tear this storm apart. And it's a battle between those two factors. And thankfully, the wind shear is going to win out as we head toward the upcoming week. And Once the storm crosses into the Caribbean, it's going to encounter that unfavorable environment. But in the short term here, through tomorrow and into Friday, It still has that warm water, low shear. So we do think this is going to strengthen into a Category 1 hurricane by Thursday Mm. morning. But as it continues its trek westward, it is going to lose some of that wind intensity. Still going to have lots of moisture, though. Central parts of Hispaniola, 4 to 8 inches of rain. Puerto Rico, 2 to 4 inches of rain. Could have that much in the Virgin Islands as well. But thankfully, this is going to kind of Stay far enough south where the wind issues are going to stay away from the islands. And the mainland U.S., the steering winds are going to keep this thing to the south and help break it apart. So as we get toward this time next week, we're thinking that this is not going to be a problem for the U.S.
0: Good stuff. Adam, really appreciate the view. And uh, hopefully that will calm down as a hurricane. Adam, appreciate it. <laughs> we need it, too. Yeah, certainly so. And the temperatures in Texas. All right. In the meantime, a new court filing released today detailing alleged ties between some J.P. Morgan Chase bank executives. And disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein, Eamon Javers, joining us now with the latest on this
5: ongoing saga. Yeah, Brian, they called it Project Jeep. It was a 2019 internal JP Morgan investigation into the firm's own ties to deceased sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. This morning, the full 23-page document was revealed in court proceedings in full for the first time. The report sheds new light on just how close some bank executives were to Epstein, relying on him for career advice, help for their children, and a lavish luxury lifestyle. Much of the most revealing information comes in emails from then-J.P. Morgan executive Jess Staley to Epstein, showing that Epstein was deeply involved in seemingly every aspect of Staley's personal life, business activity, and his career. He relied on Epstein for salary negotiations with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, writing to Epstein in 2008, quote, Jamie wants me to tell him how much I should make this year. Epstein replied the next day, quote, tell him a $1 million increase to $25 million. Staley relied on Epstein for an introduction to England's Prince Andrew, who sent Staley a Happy Christmas email shortly thereafter. Staley replied in part, I must say getting a Christmas note from the Duke of York is sort of cool. And the document reveals extensive emails between Epstein and J.P. Morgan executive Mary Erdos attempting to set up a business venture apparently involving Microsoft founder Bill Gates. Now, earlier this year, Brian, Gates said it had been a huge mistake to spend time with Epstein. J.P. Morgan, for its part, has called Epstein's behavior monstrous and said the bank regrets any association with him. Brian, what are the status of those lawsuits right now? Eamon? do we know? Well, we saw J.P. Morgan settle a massive settlement, $290 million, uh, with the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. They haven't settled a related uh, suit now uh, brought by the U.S. Virgin Islands. That case is ongoing. There's a lot of speculation about whether that will be settled or whether that one is going to go to court. We'll see where it lands right now. But one big settlement so far in all of this, Brian. Eamon Javers, that story continues. Eamon, thank you. You bet. All right, up ahead, the
0: frantic search for a missing submarine exploring the Titanic shipwreck. as the booming extreme tourism industry officially run amok? Stay with us. All right, welcome back. President Biden hailing what he said was progress in restoring U.S.-China ties. Yesterday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with Chinese President Xi Jinping for a 35-minute meeting. Blinken is the highest-ranking American official to visit China in nearly five years. Both sides pledged to stabilize U.S.-China relations. Still, the Chinese foreign ministry demanded an end to the U.S. sanctions over China, which they have called illegal. The high-stakes meeting comes. The Wall Street Journal reports that China and Cuba are planning to establish a joint military training facility on the island. That is raising concern that it could lead to Chinese troops just hundreds of miles, or even less so, from the coast of Florida. For more on this, bring in former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, do you view this meeting, what we know of it anyway, as a potential success?
6: Well, I don't think uh, we know enough about it to be definitive, but I, I don't regard it as accomplishing much of anything. Uh, that one of the principal purposes of, of, the, of the meeting with Xi and also with lesser officials was to restore military to military communications at the top level. And at least so far that has not happened. Let me just say with respect to a 35 minute meeting with Xi Jinping and take note of that table. I'll, I'll come back to that. You know, there's translation from English to Chinese and vice versa. That means each side had uh, 17 and a half minutes. And if you assume that the translations are equal, that meant they had less than nine minutes each side Mm. to make their points. That's assuming it was 50-50. Xi Jinping's the head of state in China. He's the big enchilada. He could have talked for 20 of those minutes. Or maybe he didn't talk at all. Maybe he let his foreign minister speak across that U-shaped table to the U.S. Secretary of State. So, look, it was symbolic. It's better than not having the meeting. I certainly agree with that. But I wouldn't read too much into it, especially as we learn about this plan potentially for uh, a significant Chinese presence in Cuba.
0: Which is a scary concept. I mean, you go back and look at 1962. Now, obviously, we're not talking about nuclear missiles. I get it. But kind of you could you could make the analogy there. Let's bring the video back up of that table to your point, Ambassador, what I think. And correct me if I'm wrong. Don't want to put words in your mouth. What you're going to say is that President Xi was at the head of the table, Blinken's on the side. In other words, this was clearly his domain and this was not an equal meeting. Should this have been President Biden there? Well, uh,
6: you know, th- that will come in time. I mean, different, different heads of state use the symbolism in different ways. I think this was making it clear the head guy was welcoming a subordinate from the United States. Fine, that, he's made his point. Uh, I, think, I think we need to make our point in response to substance, really, not style. So let's take the Cuba thing as an example. You know, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you said, we we had a a deal, in effect, with the Soviets. They wouldn't try and put military or additional uh, uh, problematic facilities in Cuba, and we wouldn't overthrow the Castro government. I mean, you can like that deal or not, but that was the deal. We have no such deal with China, and I think we ought to make it clear to the successors to the Castros in Cuba that if they go ahead with this China operation, uh, we don't consider ourselves bound. Uh, by any agreement with the Soviet Union uh, as it affects China. I mean, I think we've got to put some pressure on Cuba here. I'd go a lot further than that in many respects, but I'd at least make it clear we're not going to sit by while China increases its presence 90 miles off our shores. Well, what do we do then? Well, as I say, I think we we make it clear to the Cuban leadership that their regime is in jeopardy, as it was uh, before the deal with the Soviets. I think Cuban-Americans would support that, and I think we've got to make it clear that uh, that this foreign uh, establishment on soil of a Western hemisphere country violates the Monroe
0: Doctrine, and we're not going to accept it. I sort of is that advocating for regime change in Cuba? I want to be clear on what I'm understanding when you say the regime, the regime is at risk. What what exactly could we would we do, Ambassador?
6: Well, we could support the Cuban people more effectively, who really, I think, want this regime to go as well. Uh, I think we could put many more sanctions back on Cuba. We could put some sanctions on China. Uh, This is just not something that we should say, boy, that's inconvenient, isn't it? That's the sign of a passive, weak U.S. government. And our adversaries around the world will draw all the wrong conclusions if we just sit back and let it happen.
0: Ambassador John Bolton, I really appreciate your views. Uh, dramatic time, dramatic period in history. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for having me. you very welcome. Oh, by the way, a quick programming note, a new CNBC documentary looks at how Chinese spies are targeting corporate America. Eamon Javers, just saw him dives deep into the shadowy world of espionage to tell that story, and specifically one of a spy from China who attempted to steal GE's jet engine secrets, and details what U.S. law enforcement says is an illicit campaign by China to dominate global high-tech industries. It's called China's Corporate Spy War, and it premieres tomorrow, June 21st, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, right here on CNBC. That will be an interesting watch. All right. Still ahead. We got a lot more last call on this busy Tuesday night. Don't go anywhere. We're right back. All right. Welcome back to last call. Also happening, President Biden meeting with AI experts in San Francisco about threats posed by the emerging technology. Listen to what the president had to say earlier today, just before that meeting.
6: We need to manage the risks uh, to our society, to our economy, and our national security. My administration is committed, it's committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released.
0: But will the White House and the U.S. government at large potentially create more problems than they solve? Joining us now with Reaction former Acting White House Chief of Staff and Acting Strategic, Actum Strategic Advisors, co-chair Mick Mulvaney, and former U.S. Senator and University of Chicago Institute of Politics Director Heidi Heitkamp, also a CBC contributor. Senator Heitkamp, I would imagine in the, in the esteemed halls of the University of Chicago, AI is a hot topic. What do you make about this meeting? What do you make about the proper role of the legislative body in trying to harness this or control it or regulate it?
7: You know, I've been watching this for a long time, for now really over two years. And if you look at kind of where the Congress has been, they started from knowing nothing to tons of briefings, more people attending, more discussions. And what's what's remarkable to me, um, uh, Brian, is that no one says there doesn't need to be any regulation, just leave it alone. I'm short of Ted Cruz, who says the government will only mess it up. Everybody's trying to figure out what the right lane is. And and there's this kind of approach avoidance with the industry, right? So you want the industry to be involved because they have the technical expertise. But by the same token, you don't want to get hoodwinked on what the regulation needs to be. I think in some ways, one of the things that I believe is that the threats of AI are being kind of exaggerated by people who don't have a lot of knowledge about the technology. But I think Congress has, for the first time, kind of gotten this right, they're on the right pace. And I think the administration has been very measured in how they've approached AI regulation.
0: And and AI, Mick, has been around for a while, but obviously it's just kind of come into our collective consciousness with ChatGPT, and it's made these leaps and bounds. Bitcoin has been around more than a decade. I know we've only been talking about it in mainstream for a couple of years, been around a long time and the sec and the cftc still can't figure out how to regulate it are we going to be talking about potential ai regulation a decade from now
8: yeah i hope not because we can't wait 10 years on this you're exactly right in fact when i saw the folks in the ai industry come down and ask to be regulated by congress and that doesn't happen every single day when it happens we should pay attention to it but the last time in my memory that happened was when the crypto folks came in in 2011, 12, 13 and said, please regulate us. We, we need some guidance. We need some guardrails. Here's what could be good about the industry. Here's what could be bad about the industry. Help us help ourselves. And here we are 10 years on now with no meaningful guidance out of the legislature and haphazard guidance at best out of the SEC or at least uh, inconsistent uh, guidance out of the administration. So I hope that's not the case here. I hope the folks look at AI. I think, I think Heidi's probably right that the the negatives here are probably exaggerated, but if we let it go another 10 years, they might not be. So I hope that Congress pays attention. I hope they're more, let's say, diligent about helping do the right thing here than they have been on crypto.
0: Yeah, you think um, knowing what you know about the uh, the Senate and, and House of Representatives, Senator Heidkamp, that this will get resolved? I mean, we're just scrapping and fighting over budget battles, and I'm told that there's some kind of an election next year.
7: You know, I actually think that this, there's a lot of bipartisan interest in this. Um, the industry saying help us regulate Uh, this appropriately. I think the bigger question is how are we going to work with our allies in other countries because we can regulate our own industry here. But what comes in from the outside is going to be critical. And so this needs to be a global discussion on how we regulate AI on Bitcoin. I have to confess I was on on the banking committee when uh, we first started talking about cryptocurrencies. And I said listen you better get it right because right now it's buyer beware. If you want to invest in Bitcoin. That's on you if you lose money. We we interject regulation. We tell people uh, investment is safe. If we're gonna uh, in- inject ourselves, then we better make sure we do it right because people are gonna rely on that regulation as they make uh, life decisions, especially investment decisions and things like Bitcoin.
0: I'm trying to figure out, Mick, where the tech community and its army of well-paid lobbyists may come in on this because you know, tech is always like laissez faire. Like, well, we're not the problem. It's the people out of the problem. It's it's not us. We're we're great. We spend tens of billions of dollars on lobbying every year, whatever it might be. Where do you think they're coming in on AI? Because we actually seem to have some of the tech firms who are the ones that are warning us about
8: it. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the places that this is different than crypto. When crypto started when I started the blockchain caucus back in two thousand thirteen. It was a lot of sort of new startups. It was folks working out of their houses, working out of their garages, working out of their basements, et cetera. It was a very immature sort of industry. The players here now in AI are sophisticated. It's the Microsofts, the Googles. They're they're real players. So I'm hopeful at least that there's no learning curve for the industry when it comes to dealing with Washington, D.C. Keep in mind, lobbyists are important. They help educate sometimes lawmakers on on what they're regulating. Keep there's no way that a lawmaker is going to know as much about AI as the person who is actually in the business. And lawmakers rely on folks with that sort of knowledge to help them fashion good legislation and good regulation. I, so if you're going to be optimistic, you'd be optimistic about the fact that these folks are probably a little bit more mature, the industry's a little bit further along, um, and that maybe you get better regulation as a, as a result.
0: You know, separately, Senator Heidkamp, and this is off topic, but I'm just going to lob it up because I know you can handle it is, you know, I understand the president tight schedule meeting in San Francisco with these, you know, the millionaires that are that are going to raise money. But when I look at what's happening in San Francisco, do you wish to be a little more at the high level talked about how to fix the clearly the deterioration of one of America's greatest cities or what
7: used to be? I've got a theory I think Nancy Pelosi should run for uh, mayor of San Francisco I think she would be dynamic and and send a whole different vibe about uh, fixing the problems but I mean clearly this is a city That needs some strong leadership and they need to be honest about their problems. Uh, My daughter lived in San Francisco. I saw it just over the period of time that she lived there. And anybody who's been in this great, vibrant city and now spends time there wonders why it's not getting fixed. And these are intractable, these problems are not intractable. There's no problem we can't fix if we don't decide we're going to invest to fix it, both brain power and and some resources.
0: Or get, the, or get the power of the national media that follows the president to actually go downtown and see this and walk around. I get it, the president's got a super tight schedule, he's gotta raise money as well. But you know, San Francisco, it's, it's, uh, it's sad what's going on there. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, Mick Mulvaney, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, speaking of that, can downtown ghost towns be resurrected into boom towns? Miami mayor and presidential hopeful Francis Suarez gives you his plan to try to revive American cities like San Francisco. All right, time now for your Tuesday RBI. And today it's get random but interesting on housing. Because if you thought where you live is expensive, there are some areas in America which are downright unaffordable to most buyers. And we know, we know this from Realty Hop's latest housing affordability index, or... Maybe this should be called the housing unaffordability index, most expensive areas in America. But before we hit them, here are a few scary findings from their latest survey. Number one, in 66 cities across America, homeowners must now spend over 30 percent of their annual income on their home. And in the 25 most unaffordable markets, that number climbs to over 40 percent of your annual pay just to pay for your home. Amazing. But where is the worst of the worst, the three least affordable housing markets in America? Well, RealtyHop has some, I think, surprises. The third least affordable market is Newark, New Jersey, where you need to set aside 72% of your income just to own a home. Number two, no surprise, L.A., Los Angeles, where a median household income is now spending $4,700 per month on mortgage and property taxes. But according to RealtyHop, the now least affordable market in America to most people is Miami. While the median home price actually fell a touch, it is now at 585000 which means the median income family must spend 79.9% of their income on a home. Now, obviously, that is not feasible for most buyers. You're not spending 80% on a house. So it seems likely that in these markets, these are likely mostly deep-pocketed investors who are buying the homes and then renting them back out. I mean, no way you can spit 80%, right? So by the way, where are the most affordable housing markets in America? Well, it's all about the Midwest. St. Louis, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Cleveland, Wichita, Kansas, and Detroit are the places where your income will go the furthest. In Detroit, you'd only need 16% of your income to buy the median-priced home, which is, wait for it, just $81,900. Detroit, Rock City and affordable well housing affordability is not the only issue plaguing many cities right now as we have discussed extensively on this show rising crime rates homelessness empty offices fleeing retailers you name it it is putting a blemish on many downtowns across america there was a shootout in broad daylight in san francisco in a heavily touristed area over the weekend and some kids on bikes were nearly run over now economically Wall Street is increasingly souring on the outlook for major metro areas, as the new Wall Street Journal report highlights today. The consequences for city finances and residents are profound. There are hundreds of billions in value and economic output on the line. But not every city is built the same. Some have managed to avoid many of these issues. An example, Miami. Despite what we just talked about, the higher housing costs, tourism is booming. Hotels, restaurants, restaurants mobbed economic growth hot and foreign investment has been pouring in among other recent successes but can miami's model be applied to save other american cities from the brink joining us now with further insight is miami mayor and republican presidential candidate francis suarez mayor suarez thank you for joining us you and i met in person when i came down i think it was in early 21 and the covid vaccination thing that you were doing uh, at the hard rock stadium so it's good to have you on the program as well is there something you can point to that you guys did differently that some of these cities which are greatly struggling did not
9: i think there's a few things the first is we kept taxes low so i lowered taxes to the lowest level in history and we saw unprecedented growth last year we grew 12 percent which is the second most growth in recorded history now we used those funds in a targeted fashion so uh, while other cities defunded their police, we increased funding for our police. Last year we had the lowest homicide rate per capita since 1964. This year we're 40%, four zero, 40% below that historic low number. And then we obviously leaned into innovation. Uh, you know, we have, we're number one in wage growth. Uh, we're number, we have the lowest unemployment in America and we're number one in tech job growth. I think it's indisputable that the economy of today and tomorrow is going to be tech-based. And so I think all American cities should be positioning themselves to take advantage of what I consider to be a tsunami of generational opportunity. I think that's something that all America can do. All America can keep taxes low. All America can focus on safety, which of course attracts people and creates demand. And then all America can focus its energies on the economies of tomorrow.
0: And and, you know, and and I've been on, on Twitter, I've been sort of sad and critical and just feeling for San Francisco, a city that I love and have met many amazing people there. And they say, well, there's a lot of higher crime and murder rates than other cities, and I understand that, Mayor. But the reason that I focus on San Francisco so much is that San Francisco is, or at least was, one of the most important economic centers as well of the United States, if not the world. Now, I understand Silicon Valley is south of that, but downtown had a lot of big companies as well. It's been severely, severely hollowed out. So you have a human story first and foremost, but this is also a major economic story in a way that other cities are not. Are you getting calls, OK, from tech companies that have moved or are looking to move from San Francisco or other
9: parts of California? We are. And I think the reason why is because we don't take our customers for granted. You saw very famously uh, New York who applied for the Amazon prize, won the Amazon prize and said, no, thank you. Uh, And that wasn't just the 50,000 high-paying jobs that Amazon was going to provide. That's a signaling effect. And the signaling effect to the market is if you're going to build, uh, you know, if you're gonna invest in our city, if you're gonna create high paying jobs, we don't want you. The same thing happened in San Francisco where you had a public official saying F Elon Musk, and of course he replied message received and he left to Austin. Again, this is arguably the richest person in the world and it's not just that you're basically kicking him out of your city, uh, a place where, you know, in in America, if you work hard, if you risk capital, if you start from nothing, you don't wanna be a pariah in your Mm -hmm. own community. And once they pushed him out, the signaling effect was, if you're gonna be successful, we don't want you here. You wanna create high paying jobs, you wanna create revolutionary technology, we don't want you here. At the same exact time, uh, there was a tweet that was put out on December 4th of 2020 saying, what if we move Silicon Valley to Miami? And my response was, how can I help? I wanted to be able to help. I wanted to roll out the red carpet for these new companies. We've moved approximately $3 trillion in AUM in the last two years of companies, thousands of jobs, billions of dollars in wages. Yeah. And I think I think we've increased our venture capital pipeline, if I'm not mistaken, by about 500% well, you, in two you, years you, alone.
0: You, you stayed, listen, I live in New Jersey, Mayor, and, and my friends, they would whisper, I'm going to Florida this weekend because they could actually go to dinner and go out. And it was kind of like this this thing. You stayed open. You took a lot of heat for it. But when I look at the numbers, Los Angeles County, where I grew up, and Miami-Dade County, the COVID fatality numbers are actually better in Miami-Dade than they are in L.A., even though the schools opened up months in some cases before Los Angeles. I'm not criticizing L.A., but I'm simply saying you took a lot of heat for that you know, and you don't want anybody to suffer, but do you feel like there is a lesson that can be learned here?
9: Yeah, look, we were number one in pandemic recovery. Uh, We were number one, as you said, in direct foreign investment. Uh, And I also think there are qualitative things that we focus on because we wanna create the premium quality of life, understanding that we're in an experiential economy. Uh, We're ranked the happiest city in America and the healthiest city in America. And we firmly believe that if people are happy, they're healthy, they're working, and our cities are well-policed, we're gonna have law and order, Uh, we're not gonna have homicides, Mm -hmm. and that has been our formula for success. I do think it's scalable nationally. Part of my presidential candidacy is not just tackling the big national problems like the deficit and immigration and the rising uh, threat of China, but it's also understanding that 85% of this country live in American cities, and 91% of the GDP produced by this country is produced by people who live in American cities.
0: I can't let you go I do have to ask this question of you, the FBI and the SEC investigating a Florida developer payments allegedly made to you around a big building project. I know you primarily work as a lawyer and investor kind of mayors on the side, right, but have recently revealed doing some work for the developers ongoing investigation into that as well. Can you explain
9: what is going on here? Absolutely. I can explain that for 13 years, uh, I've been a working elected official. I've never had an ethical issue. I've never had an allegation of an ethical issue. And I've never put my public position to benefit a private party. That's never happened. It's never going to happen. And it just so happens that right before I'm about to announce a presidential candidacy, my local paper, which everyone agrees is an extremely liberal publication, came out with a smear campaign to attack me. Um, You know, Look, I welcome scrutiny. I understand that when you run for president. People are going to ask questions. They're going to scrutinize every aspect of your life, and they're going to be critical of you. I have no problem with that. Uh, You know, I've never done anything unethical, and I won't do it anytime in the future.
0: Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami. Mayor Suarez, thanks for joining us here on CNBC and Last Call. Hope to chat with you again, sir. All right. Mayor Moore, Last Call. Right after this. Welcome we'll back to a quick update on the desperate search and rescue in the deep water tourism sub looking at the Titanic. Now, as of now, there are about 33 hours of oxygen remaining before it runs out on that submarine. Now, the deep sea vehicle operated by a company called OceanGate is about the size of a minivan, can fit up to five people. This was the third expedition to the Titanic wreck for OceanGate, which comes at a price tag of about $250,000 per person. Our thoughts are with the families. See you tomorrow night.